and this is actually one of the things I'm most optimistic about. The discussion about policing in 2021 was very immature uh, and very not constructive, frankly. I think that there was a lot of um, hyperbolic language around question two that made it seem like we were gonna have some sort of purge after election day. <laughs> and all the police were gonna hand in their badges and guns. Force the chief to retire? Can you imagine the chief retiring after oh, no. the election? <laughs> <laughs> and you know, all of that rhetoric was just so toxic. We lost the question two battle, but the, the bigger discussion about the future of public safety, I feel like we've developed some consensus around that is about adding on top of police, which was what question two was always about. It was never about getting rid of, it was always about adding more. This is a real, real, real thing. Real, 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 real thing. None of you have the balls to stop. Stop this. We're in the wedge neighborhood right now, 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 right now. Is that just a pedal bike or an e-bike? Nope, it's just pedal. Okay, that's a monstrous bike. It's just um, an excessive amount of bike, yeah. <laughs> Welcome to the Wedge Live podcast. Uh, I'm your host, John Edwards. I'm joined today by council member Elliot Payne. Hello, everyone. Ward 1, representing Northeast Minneapolis and, and other parts of Minneapolis? Just Northeast. Just Northeast. And a little bit of Como. If you hear traffic noise, that's because we're riding bikes. So youtube.com slash wedge live to watch us ride. We're gonna be talking about bike infrastructure and city politics and whatever occurs to us. There's no notes because we're riding bikes, uh, completely candid and off the cuff. Here we go, are you ready? I'm ready. So we are starting outside of City Hall and this is a portion of my daily commute into City Hall or back from City Hall. And uh, this is one of our newest pieces of bike infrastructure separated from the rest of the road but already you're seeing us drop off into a dedicated bike lane, but then it just kind of disappears into nothing as we go forward, so. We're on the 4th Street bikeway, right outside City Hall. This is, and we're, we're commuting with Elliot Payne. Elliot Payne has finished a, a day at work and I'm escorting him home. <laughs> and then now thanks to Bill Dooley, we can actually take this because I don't see anybody coming. Really, is that applied to red lights? Yes, the Idaho stop. I thought it only applied to stop signs. The Idaho stop is treating stop signs as yield and then stop lights as stop signs. I didn't know that. Well, you might have to fact check me on how Minnesota implemented it. I might have to, we may have just broken a law. Oh, we're gonna take a left here. Yeah, keep me in line. I often forget to make the, the turns as suggested by my guests. And up until that law change, I religiously stopped and waited at stoplights because I like being a good ambassador to bikers. Well, you are a council member. That's true. But that was true before I was a council member. A lot of the feedback I've gotten is, wow, they're stopping for red lights <laughs> when, I, when people watch the video. And also, shame on you for not wearing helmets. Thank you, Elliot Payne, for modeling good biker behavior by wearing a helmet today. I'm pretty religious about wearing the helmet because you never know when you need to sneak by a bus. True. 
I ran into Aisha Chugtai, council member uh, representing Ward 10 outside City Hall. She called you a bike bro. I can be sometimes, yeah. Said you're such a bike bro. <laughs> I don't know if people realize that. I mean, I think if you just uh, ride a bike every day, oh, we're Are we gonna, taking this. We're gonna take the lane. Okay, well, let's point out this new piece of bike infrastructure. This is my absolute favorite method of separating bike lanes, personally. We have a lot of different approaches to bike lanes as we've been implementing our transportation action plan. And I think a lot of people remember what I think was generally considered not successful, the First Avenue separation, where we had the parked cars as kind of like a barrier between the driving lane and the bike lane. That wasn't exactly successful because you were liable to get doored. It was a very uncomfortable place to ride as a biker. This is another style of bike infrastructure, the mixed use trail, usually along things. Actually, this is the Grand Rounds. Let's talk about the, the curb separated bikeway. Yes. Because we're getting a lot of those sidewalk level bike paths where uh, no fault to pedestrians, they end up in the, the bikeway because it's sidewalk level. It's, it's marked often, but it's easy to wander into it. Yes. I also prefer curb separated. Can you explain what the thinking is? It seems we seem to have made it routine to make the sidewalk level paths instead of the street level with curb separation. You know, I've actually on a personal level, I've evolved on this. And I also have to think about this, not just as a council member, but as a biker, as a biker of a certain era and a certain age, I actually started commuting before we had as much infrastructure as we have right now. So a lot of the routes that I usually take are very kind of off the beaten path, down main arterial roads, always trying to take side streets. We are now expanding our, our all ages, all abilities network. That is to encourage, you know, young people all the way up to older people who maybe aren't as comfortable and confident on a bike to have accessible infrastructure. And I think one of the really important factors for that is to know that that infrastructure exists. We have Lowry Avenue that's gonna get a reconstruction coming up uh, next year, starting next year. And there was a big debate about how much of that corridor should be allocated for um, bike and pedestrian use. First of all, as Lowry is right now, it is a terrifying street to, to bike on. I personally don't ever bike on Lowry in the few instances that I do, I end up riding on the sidewalk because it just does not feel safe to be in the street there. But I frequently see people biking on Lowry. I've been biking in Minneapolis for over 10 years. I basically have an entire map in my head about which way I'm going to take to avoid traffic. Uh, people who don't have 10 years of bike experience don't magically put together routes. They're used to going down the streets that they drive. And so the All Ages All Ability Network is really utilizing some of our most traveled streets because that's the way that most people know how to get around the city. They're, they have more of a mental map of, of driving the city rather than biking. And so it's really important that people can see this is a really safe, welcoming place for you to come and ride your bike so that when you're driving or catching the bus or walking, you see that infrastructure and it encourages you to hopefully get out and you know swap out some of those trips by bike i think that's not sinking in uh with a lot of people especially a lot of bikers because i'm watching the summit avenue debate in st paul that's been going on forever and you've got old guys in bike jerseys uh saying no the painted uh, lanes on the street without without even so much as a bollard 
is, is enough. It's good enough. Right. I use it. It's fine. If you're happy with the people who are biking right now as the only people who can feel safe biking, then that's a good solution. Well, and there's different styles of biking. And as a daily bike commuter, uh, I ride a certain way and I have a certain preference. But on the weekends, I do own spandex and I Ooh. have a road bike. And I like to suit up sometimes and go fast. And it's not just about the style of bike that you are riding, it's what you're trying to get out of the trip. And when I go on a bike ride in the, on the weekend, I'm, it's more of a recreational thing for me. And I'm not trying to get from A to B. I'll very frequently ride to Stillwater as just a fun thing to do on the weekend. I mean, maybe that's a little bit of a sicko thing, but there's even <laughs> a, a generational divide to that of um, kind of old school bike racers that there's almost like this machismo about it. Are, are you familiar with the rules? Right. Uh, there's an entire kind of like elitist culture associated with road, road racing and road biking that can actually be a huge turnoff for a lot of people. And it's not going to be an effective uh, culture to actually encourage and invite and welcome people into riding bikes. And so uh, when I am suited up in my fancy kit on my fancy custom bike uh, and I'm riding 25 miles per hour, it is one thing to be on the shoulder of a highway. It's a whole nother thing when I'm just trying to get to work and I don't want to have to be sweaty when I show up and I just want to relax and not think too much. And that's when having that dedicated bike infrastructure is really helpful. Are you commuting by bike year round, even in the winter? Even in the winter. Uh, what do you do in the winter? Are you one of those people in goggles? I've got goggles and face mask and really, once you have your skin covered up, it kind of doesn't matter how cold it is outside. You're kind of an oven once your, your body temperature gets going. Once you get down to 20 degrees, there's almost no difference between 20 above and 20 below. Here we are in October. What is it, October 11th, 12th? Sounds about right, yeah. <laughs> and I'm in a t-shirt. We're in t-shirts. We're in t-shirts. So uh, I don't know if this is a month where people who show up to oppose bike lanes at public meetings uh, <laughs> anticipate people can still bike in t-shirts, but you can. Climate change is happening. And this is actually the hardest weather to dress for. I had to wear a jacket on the way in because it was in the 30s this morning right and now it's in the 60s i think are there particular bike projects or street projects in your ward uh, that you think are excited about or you are thinking aren't getting enough attention you want to move them up i'm really excited about lowry avenue redesign this has been a project that's been over a decade in the making it's lowry is a disaster of a street it is basically a highway on city roads um, and it's very narrow too. The sidewalk is completely collapsed in. It's not a comfortable place to walk. It's a, not a safe place to bike. Uh, and it's gonna get really meaningful upgrades on that reconstruction. Another project that I've gotten a lot of uh, community engagement around is the 29th Avenue uh, resurfacing. That was originally supposed to be a reconstruction and then it got downgraded to a mill and overlay. But a lot of the community got really upset about that downgrade and got really engaged and now we're going to at least have an opportunity to bring some new features whether it's a separated bike lane or um, some 
crosswalks, some additional signage, but some real attention paid to 29th Avenue because that is actually a really, really tore up street right now. That gets a lot of traffic. So going back to, uh, I don't know, maybe 10 years. Wow, it's been 10 years I've been in Minneapolis, but when I got here, uh, it was bike lane Betsy. That was the epithet hurled oh, yeah. at our mayor. Uh, uh, then we had Lisa, bike lady Lisa Bender, who was ruining the city with her big uh, ideas on transportation. It was very personality-based and a very aldermanic privilege when it came to like which parts of the city would actually get street improvements yeah. because the council member didn't like it. Uh, just wasn't going to happen there. Now we've got the transportation action plan and an approach that says we should uh, treat streets across the city kind of the same based on their their context and what people use them for. We've even got a website with like maps that show exactly how the street should be laid out. Yeah. Which is cool. And it seems we've gotten there away from- Pillsbury. Good, how are you? Hello. Seems we've gotten away from a personality-based approach to uh, our street infrastructure, which is good. Alyssa Shuffman, I don't know if you know Alyssa Shuffman yeah. of the Bicycle Advisory Commission spoke to the I think it was the Public Works Committee about how we need to budget for these street improvements. It's not enough to, uh, you know, do it, do it as the street reconstruction comes along. Things like traffic calming and other things aren't getting the attention they deserve. What, what are the prospects for going faster when it comes to making streets safer? Part of it is just elevating that conversation to one of being a budget priority. I, we just had the Public Works uh, budget presentation where they outline some of the investments that they want to make. And, you know, one thing that was highlighted in that was investing a million dollars in acquiring a new place to dump snow, which is a very important thing for us to have. But the question is, what else could a million dollars do when we're thinking about infrastructure writ large? And so part of it, and I think this is how this conversation turned into something more personal, but part of it is just you need to have the votes of people that want to prioritize this kind of infrastructure investment. And you need to have people that are paying attention enough to listen to our residents when they say, hey, this street got downgraded and now we're missing a lot of features that would have been really meaningful for keeping the community safe. 29th Avenue has Northeast Middle School along it. It has Audubon Park along it and it has a lot of kids that are crossing that street. And so you need to be able to recognize not just the improvements in bike infrastructure, but there's gonna be more improvements to th things like safety and whether or not it's a place that you feel comfortable letting your kids cross on their own. Where it had been in the past, something that was really only getting prioritized through the sheer political will of individuals, now I feel like some of those community benefits are being more broadly understood beyond just a personal political project. I think it's two things. It feels more, a lot of these projects feel more controversial than even our housing debate, even though the 2040 lawsuit is ongoing. That's like a, I feel like that's politically uh, a settled issue. It feels like streets are more fraught. At the same time, I agree with you that uh, we're coming to a wider acceptance that these are good things. I mean, the 2040 plan is almost like the, the most picture-perfect example of saying one thing when you mean something else. And so these like environmental concerns, anybody who's a real environmentalist and is truly concerned about 
things like greenhouse gas recognizes that the way that we're going to reduce that is by mode shifting off of internal combustion engines to other modes of transportation, whether it's biking, rolling, or public transit. Um, and the way that we make that effective is by having a more robust transportation system, more accessible bike infrastructure. But when you're making a claim that the 2040 plan is going to increase pollution because there's going to be more people driving because it's going to be a denser city, it's hard to take that at face value as that's what their true concern is. And so I think the, the weirdest version of this that I heard is, um, you know, somebody making the claim that bike lanes next to main roads is putting bikers in greater harm because the roads are more polluted uh, and therefore uh, uh, they shouldn't you, be biking. You shouldn't be words. biking there because there's going to be all this PM 2.5 pollutants that you're breathing in. And it's just, you have to call the question, do you really care about the PM 2.5 uh, concentration or do you actually just want more lanes for cars? And I, I think that's actually one of the biggest problems with politics in Minneapolis, especially in a town that's either one party or uh, you know, primarily Democrat with an uh, active socialist wing, uh, is if you have some more conservative, conservative leanings, you have to wrap those up into something that can be consumed by a, a progressive electorate. I mean, that's a good thing that they feel compelled to at least acknowledge uh, your priorities are the right ones. You're just wrong about how to get there. Right. And it pu pushes them into bad faith arguments that are kind of embarrassing if you examine them a little. Yeah, and I think... I think you, you wrote a really good blog post about the Bender era and what was actually accomplished at that time. And when you start thinking about this in terms of multiple terms or even multiple generations, the conversation has definitely shifted. Um, everybody's on board with the goals of 2040. Oh, I just don't like how we get there. Whereas the front of that conversation used to be, I don't know if these are the right goals. And so some of those moral wins don't always translate to meaningful actual investments on the ground, literally and figuratively, but it does change the nature of the conversation of, hey, we all agree on the transportation action plan. Now the question is, what's the pace of investment to get us to that goal that we all share, which I think is an improvement at least. Although we've got a candidate in Ward 13, uh uh, claiming social engineering on <laughs> Bryan Avenue. Yes. That's, that's one complaint. Uh, there's a candidate in Ward 12 who wants to defund our city's bike infrastructure. Maybe you can answer this. You're a council member. You should know. I'll put you on the spot. Sure. How much money could we extract for other priorities by defunding our city's bike infrastructure? <laughs> I, I wouldn't be honest with you if I had a specific figure, but that figure is going to be close to zero dollars. And that's because when we're doing a road reconstruction, the, the design and build cost is effectively the same. We're not gaining or losing money based on the configuration of the curb-to-curb -curb layout. What, what we're doing is having a discussion about the use of space, not the use of dollars. And it's the space that's the um, limited resources, not, not the dollars in that instance, because the cost of asphalt and the cost of concrete is gonna be the same whether it's for a car or for a bike. You're still gonna to have to rip up the road and pour new infrastructure down. And one difference is the maintenance cost, which is uh, cars are tougher on roads than bikes are. Well, and you raise a very important <laughs> point that 
not only are cars tougher on roads than bikes, but electric cars are even tougher on roads than internal combustion engine cars because they weigh a lot more to make up for the amount of batteries that are necessary. Where are we now, Elliot Payne? What neighborhood is this? Uh, this is Beltrami. We're in your ward? We are still in Ward 3. We're going to take her right here. And then once we cross Broadway, we will go into Ward 1. Why don't you have a serious opponent this year, Elliot Payne? I've been thinking about how no one, no one good, present company excluded, <laughs> wants to run for city council anymore. Well, what, no matter the uh, political perspective, I feel like the quality of candidates is going down. You know, this is not a fun job. I'll just say it straight up. Nothing can prepare you for this job, you know, and I worked in City Hall for four years, so I thought I was pretty prepared for this. There is nothing like being elected. I think the thing that you can't be prepared for is the amount of emotional work that goes into this. Setting aside the fairly complex and technocratic policy elements, uh, you know, as we're talking about budgets and road reconstruction, I, I, I sit on the Transportation Advisory Board uh, at Met Council, and the level of sophistication of the scoring and the prioritization and this long-term planning. It's intellectually hard and complex, but I think that's actually the easy part. And maybe my background's in engineering, so my threshold for what's difficult is deformable body mechanics and thermodynamics. <laughs> so most of this stuff is just kind of like simple math when you break it down. But it's the, the raw and visual emotion that just exists in this job. And it's not just like, oh, I got into a argument with one of my colleagues on the dais, which, yeah, those can be emotionally challenging too, but it's the, I got a text message from a constituent that a dead body was found next to them. And you have to be able to respond to that. And you might not be in a headspace where you were prepared for that weight of a piece of news entering your consciousness. And that kind of stuff comes to you not daily, not dead right. bodies daily, but it's a major city. So something significant is happening at any given time. Uh, just as we were leaving, I saw that there was a sign that got hit by a car and I got a chance to ride um, St. Anthony Parkway with Adam Klugman. And we were talking about some uh, traffic improvements that we could do, traffic calming improvements we could do. And I was asking about bollards and he was just reminding me, is like every time you install a bollard, that's another piece of infrastructure you need to maintain. And so, as an example, those road signs, uh, we're replacing 30 to 40 of those a week. So there's just a scale of issues that come before you as a result of just the size of our city. That's quite overwhelming, if I'm honest. And I think anybody who would be interested into getting into public life, they're prob probably already intimidated by things like making decisions on where to put the third precinct, right. the controversy of the Department of Justice consent decree. You would think policing by itself would be such a controversial am, issue. Am I good enough? Am I smart enough? Right. Let alone, like, you have to have a conversation about, you know, a consent decree with the Department of Justice at the same time as weed pulling on Johnson Street. So, and you have to be able to hold both of those two things at the same time and not minimize an issue just because, you know, for me as a black man, you know, police brutality is one of the most important things that I came here to address. 
That doesn't mean I have to, I, I get to abandon things like potholes. You right. still have to care about potholes. Right. What's wrong with this intersection? Did we miss a cycle? Oh yeah, this one, sometimes you just got to take it because there's, I think, a, a sensor on it uh, that if there's not a car here, it won't trigger the sensor sometimes. Uh, this is your ward, Elliot Payne. Get it, call Alan Klugman. Get <laughs> this fixed. Actually, I think I reported this to 311 actually years ago. <laughs> one time I tweeted about a, a light cycle that was not triggering for pedestrians automatically because yeah. in Minneapolis, they're supposed to trigger automatically. No button pushing required. And uh, Alan Klugman saw the tweet and emailed me and said it was fixed. That's like a top-notch service. That's actually one of the really cool things about working at the city, especially where I sit, because I see a lot of those issues. They either come to me by email or otherwise. And uh, city staff is actually really responsive. Uh, you what just we, have to be... Are we doing it? No, oh, we, I think, I think, oh, it. no, we had a moment. We had a moment. Um, <laughs> This podcast is just us at this intersection now. <laughs> you would be surprised by how responsive city staff are. It's just when you're experiencing it as an individual, you don't see that there's actually thousands of versions of this thing that are getting addressed. You just see your one version of it. And so it's actually one of my favorite parts about the job, honestly. And everybody will like email me when they do have a complaint and say, oh, I hate to bother you with this little thing. I know you have so much on your plate, but it's actually one of the most rewarding parts of the job when you can actually help them get their thing resolved. This is our time. This is our window. We got it. <laughs> and so we have ridden on elevated separated bike lanes at the sidewalk level. We rode a new curb separated bike lane, although it wasn't open yet, technically. <laughs> we rode the uh, Grand Rounds uh, shared use trail. We rode a bike boulevard. That's what we were just on back there. And right now we're about to cut through Northeast Park, but this has been the route I've been taking lately. <laughs> and then we're going to connect up to the 18th Avenue uh, bike trail. And it's just a demonstration, especially I think this is a big thing for Northeast, at least for me as a biker. We don't have a lot of continuously connected bike infrastructure that will get you from point A to point B. Right. We have these little spatterings. You have to have some knowledge. Yeah, you have to know your way around and have your preferred route. Uh, and then we have the Yingwa car pickup where it's usually a really long line and often they will block the ramp. So we'll have to weave our way through this. That's why you have the big monster tires. Yep, they're kind of overkill. Is that your winter commuting bike? Okay, here goes the backstory on this bike. Fall of 2020, lockdown was not going to end anytime soon. This idea of bending the curve was not going to happen. Because if you remember, we were supposed to lock down for like two weeks, yeah. four max, bend the curve, and then get back to normal. Yeah. And it was very clear to me that we were not getting back to any normal anytime soon. Uh, so I considered buying a Peloton. Oh. My mom got one of those. Yeah, until I looked at the price tag. <laughs> and I said, I could buy a brand new bike for that price. And I'm a winter biker and I have all of the winter biking gear. So I was like, I'm gonna buy a fun adventure bike to go on bike rides in the winter. Cause that was the only thing that kept me sane during lockdown is I would go on a uh, bike ride every day at lunch. So that's what this is. And it's turned into my favorite bike, so. How long have you lived in Minneapolis? I probably asked you that before, but. Uh, I moved here in 2000 to go to University of Minnesota. 
So my reference is the last 10 years, and I see how a lot of things have changed in housing and transportation policy. Yeah. Uh, what occurs to you when you think about all the ways the city has changed over the last 20 plus years? I feel like when I moved here in 2000, this still felt very much like a uh, upper Midwest kind of small secondary city. Uh, not as small as Fargo, but kind of more akin to kind of like an agricultural hub than necessarily a major city. And I feel like, especially in the last 10 years, this feels like a major city. And maybe that's my perspective shifting from working in City Hall, but hell, with things like the murder of George Floyd, those are some pretty big city problems, right? Uh, we're gonna take a right onto the 18th Avenue bike trail. This is another one of our new bike lanes, newish. It's been around for a few years, but another reflection of really great bike infrastructure for a very brief period of time. And then we're gonna take Johnson Street. There was a, I spoke with a national journalist about the 2040 plan and uh, like how we, how we did it in Minneapolis, how we were first, what's different about Minneapolis politics that made that happen. And I got to thinking about, I don't know, I had a hard time answering the question and if my answer felt like not very concrete. And I got to thinking about all the very smart and involved, politically involved people that I know. Uh, and I know other places have smart, politically involved people too, but it feels like that's what makes Minneapolis different to me. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if you, how would you answer that question? How does Minneapolis do things that other places don't do? What, what is there to be hopeful about our politics? You know, I moved here when I was 18. I wasn't the most politically active person as a young person, but I also, my first election was in the year 2000 while I lived in Minneapolis. So um, we are, I think, uniquely politically active, especially locally. Uh, most people, I don't feel like, pay that much attention to their city council races. Um, and I'm not sure why that is historically, honestly. I do have a kind of working theory about some of the cultural dynamics of Minneapolis. And one of them is the fact that there's literally nothing like, you can drive hundreds of miles in any direction and you will not find another city. <laughs> and so if you're at all interested in urban life and uh, creative uh, career, uh, a corporate professional career, the closest major city to our West is Portland or Seattle. <laughs> or you have to go down to Denver. Obviously Chicago is closer, but um, when I compare that to what it was like growing up in Milwaukee, um, so many of my friends in Milwaukee just ended up moving to Chicago because Milwaukee is in such close proximity to Chicago that why not? Whereas here, if you live on the, uh, you know, western edge of North Dakota, your options are to move to Portland, Seattle, or Minneapolis, unless you want to get on a plane and fly to one of the coasts beyond Portland, Seattle. We are a refuge for people with a certain kind of politics or, you know, people who uh, actually need to live in an urban area to feel safe. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, especially with the fact that, you know, we're surrounded by states that are banning abortion, uh, eliminating access to gender affirming health care. Um, we're kind of a beacon of the north. And so beyond that kind of geographic dynamic, there's this cultural dynamic that we're just a more inclusive culture for the most part. 
I don't know if that has to do with some of the early settlers coming from Sweden or Norway, but I will say this, the, the trifecta at the state passing some of the most significant uh, progressive legislation in the country is a huge help. And I see I'm a, a big Reddit lurker. <laughs> Me too. Uh, and there are so many posts in the Minneapolis and Twin Cities subreddits about people moving here because they got kicked out of their home for being trans or you know they were looking for a place where they could feel safe and i think that's something that we should celebrate although it's really sad that that's not true everywhere in this country this is quite a hill elliot payne Can oh this isn't the worst one yet <laughs> do something about this hill we are on our way to deming heights park which is actually the highest point in minneapolis oh really yeah and so i've got really good climbing legs because I have to climb the Northeast Hills every day on my commute. See, we've got trash cans in the way of this. Uh, this is a bike trail, right? This is a shared use trail, yep. Also part of our All Ages, All Abilities network. In uh, Ward 10, we call this social engineering. <laughs> sure. <laughs> when was this put in? Uh, this actually was, I think this opened in 2021, shortly after the election, actually. Okay, I prefer the Bryan Avenue design. I think we've, we've come a long way. Uh, especially for anybody watching, you're experiencing multiple iterations of the city's approach to bike infrastructure. And hopefully each iteration is a improvement on the previous iteration. I've heard rumblings that people in other cities actually admire what we're doing here, transportation-wise. I used to go to a conference in Portland on a fairly regular occasion. One year I rented a bike and went riding with a friend of mine who lived out there who was a big biker. And Portland's always celebrated as one of the best biking cities. And I kind of hated it. Yeah. Because they don't have any bike infrastructure. What they have is a culture of biking. So they have a lot of numbers. Right. Which I think really helps. And they have a culture of drivers who are a little bit more understanding of bikers and how to share the road. But there's very little separated bike infrastructure. And it's kind of miserable, <laughs> if I'm honest. Yeah, there was a story a couple of weeks ago about Portland. Portland has a weird city government structure. So one of their council members is like the person who runs public works. I'm gonna go uh, that way. And they're gonna rip out. Ready to go? Yep. As long as we don't get hit here. This is and we're getting honked at for <laughs> using the crosswalk. Got it. Portland. So they they had plans to rip out a protected bike lane in their downtown. And it was bizarre, but it reminded me of my worst fears about Minneapolis politics. I actually did a site visit in Portland last year, and we went to go look at the Portland Street Re Response Program, which was kind of coming online around the same time as our behavioral crisis response. Um, I worked on BCR before running for office, so that was basically what inspired me to run for office was developing, frankly, just more humane approaches to public safety in our city. And we started that work before George Floyd was murdered. It actually grew out of some of the movement work after Jamari Clark was killed. And so Portland back in 2022 was essentially living through the politics of Minneapolis 2021. You know, like everywhere else in the country, huge debate about crime and safety and seeing, you know, national crime trends going in the wrong direction. And so it was very bizarre to be there um, a year after winning my election in the same political climate 
and they even had a government structure question on the ballot. Yeah. And they basically had the exact same outcome that we had in 2021 in 2022. And so our host for the site visit was Commissioner Hardesty, and she was the one that was the champion for Portland Street Response. Um, and unfortunately, she didn't win her race. Yeah. And she lost her race to, you know, what would have been the equivalent of all of Minneapolis Operation Safety Now, tough on crime candidate. And so it's just, uh, there's, it's really important actually that we recognize not just what's happening locally, but what's happening nationally too in other local jurisdictions. Because right. um, this is like one of my favorite quotes of all time. But uh, the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. And that's kind of like, I have a background in tech and frankly, it's one of those kind of like cool techie quotes that kind of douchey tech people will say. <laughs> but it actually, it, it actually is applicable in so many different contexts because um, when you look at what's happening in Portland and on the West Coast broadly, um, encampments are a real problem and fentanyl is a real problem. And I think our total unsheltered count has waned since, you know, the peak of the pandemic, but it's definitely not trending in a good way here. And if you want to learn about what that might look like in our future, it exists today in other jurisdictions, especially in places like LA. So I think that the more that we're in touch with some of those trends, the better, because we can learn from our partner jurisdictions or at least peer jurisdictions to see what's working and what's not working. Yeah, I'm, I'm an accidental student of local politics from across the country because I watch a lot of YouTube and because I watch the local channels, YouTube is like, well, do you want to see this crime story from Portland or uh, this encampment story from Seattle? Right. It serves me up all these local stories and it really emphasizes without having to leave your home here in Minneapolis that po local politics across the country is all exactly the same. Right, right. <laughs> same people saying the same things, dealing with the same problems. So it's it's a systemic problem. It's maybe not, maybe the socialists didn't do this to us. <laughs> <laughs> maybe there's these macro forces that are not exactly in our control that might have something to do with it. Hmm. This street we're on is the classic example of me being an old school biker. It's nice. It's just a normal residential street, but it's one block off of Johnson because Johnson Street bike lane ended and I was not gonna continue biking on Johnson Street. <laughs> and so this is what happens when you don't invest in infrastructure. And again, I don't mind biking on this. This is a nice route, but if you're not an everyday biker, and you get to the end of that bike lane, you're gonna end up just keeping on Johnson Street and just being miserable about it. And I think that's the value of having those bike lanes being in a shared space with other modes because it's a, it's a really clear signal that this is where you need to be and where you're welcome to be. Woo. So we are at Deming Heights Park, which is the uh, tallest point in Minneapolis. Yes. And one of my favorite places in the city. Are you optimistic about this election here, Elliot Payne? I know you're optimistic about your own race, um, but are you optimistic about what 2024 and 2025 hold for this city, which is the length of the next council term? I am optimistic. When we think about majorities and minorities, I think it's really important to actually put that into context. 
because obviously we have a supermajority of Democrats who are elected. But that doesn't necessarily translate to a majority of people who care about, you know, good governance and accountability. Do I have preferences in the various ward races? Yes, I do. At the same time, people who are running right now are all running on platforms of accountability and, you know, good governance. And I think what that means is holding this administration, this administration more accountable. And what we have right now is a majority that's in alignment with the administration. So there's not a healthy check on that power. And under this new government structure, again, it's not about a partisan issue. It's not even about the progressives versus the moderates. It's about, are you willing to be an accountability person as it relates to how the administration conducts its day-to-day -day business? So we've seen that with the third precinct. There was a, st a staff direction I saw today authored by uh, Koski, uh, yep. Chavez, and Johnson, I think. Yep. Koski wouldn't necessarily be seen as someone who wants to challenge the mayor a ton, but they're asking for answers on what the mayor's plan plans are for the one of the alternative sites for the third precinct location. So that's maybe a good sign. That's the perfect expression of um, what I'm talking about. Uh, it's not even a difference in who is in office. It's a difference of the experience of, of living through the reality of this new government structure and the realization that um, if you don't scrutinize the decisions of the administration, you're going to feel pretty left out. Um, and you're going to feel like there's just a demand for you to rubber stamp certain policies. And so what I'm hoping for is, again, I would love for a majority that's progressive, that wants to champion uh, climate action, you know, prioritize active transportation and mode shift, uh, prioritize things like rent stabilization. That's what I'm really hoping for, and I'm optimistic about that, op that outcome, but I'm really optimistic about the outcome of a majority that takes their job very seriously as it relates to, you know, our new, more focused role of legislation and oversight. And I don't think that our majority right now has a strong emphasis on legislation and oversight. It's largely been aligned with the mayor to the point of not really questioning or challenging the judgment and decisions of the mayor. Not again, not from like a, cr a criticism perspective, but from a desiring the best outcome for Minneapolis perspective. And so I think that now that we've got 2021 behind us, you know, there's a general consensus that, yeah, there's going to be police. There's also a general consensus that we need mental health responders and probably more dedicated responses. There's a consensus that we need more affordable housing. All of those things are going to be a way for us to actually hit the ground running at the new term because regardless of the electoral outcome, first of all, the majority of us aren't gonna be brand spanking new to the job the way it was last, the beginning of this term actually, but we'll have more experience, more of those bigger questions settled and have more capacity for focusing on what our real job is, which is legislation oversight and fiscal management. And I'm confident we'll have a majority, if not a super majority of of people coming to office that take that responsibility very seriously. Michael Rainville was quoted in a like a 
article about downtown council candidates in three and seven. Yeah. And he said something like uh, armed, uh, armed police isn't the response to a violent crime or some far reaching statement like that that you wouldn't think he would say. <laughs> right. Maybe he misspoke, but I thought it was notable that he's maybe softening his rhetoric you know, compared to 2021, where he was very, very much the law and order police union candidate. Uh, something I'll give uh, Rainville a lot of credit for. He's a very sincere person. He ran with public safety as one of his top priorities. He came at it through the lens of police as kind of like the primary way that you achieve safety. Um, and through the lived experience of being in this role, you very quickly find out that the police are not going to solve all of our problems in society. And they're not coming. They're not coming. <laughs> yeah, or they're not coming sometimes. <laughs> and it doesn't matter how many donuts that you bring to roll call, that doesn't necessarily change the on the ground dynamics of what's happening. And what he cares about is safety. And he's very open to things that will be effective. And he, he's learned the limits of the effectiveness of traditional policing and has very much, you know, been open and con considered about other ways to achieve those goals. And that's something I, I, I give him great credit for, actually. We're going to be stuck in this uh, cycle of aiming for the police minimum for probably well beyond your even still at City Hall. Yep. You'll be out of this job. Campaigns will still be run on the idea of getting back to the minimum and it won't be for lack of money right after the election rainville reached out to me and asked if i wanted to do a ride-along with them again this is kind of his different relationship to police one of his old high school classmates was the night lieutenant in the first precinct he reached out to him to set up a um a ride-along for us in december of 21 right after the election but before being sworn in and i think it actually happened to be the week that bcr started but they weren't on the weekends yet and we were doing on a uh, Saturday night, if I remember. It was actually kind of funny. It was like one of the first cold weekends. And it was in that era where people were vaccinated and out and about again. But it was still like maybe like the Delta wave was kind of going on. So it was like maybe just a little bit slower because of that too. You know, we're out there and it was actually kind of a slow night. Really the only issues that we ran into. Oh, by the way, I want to point this out. Uh, this is where the cyclist was killed in a crash after a truck he was actually riding in the street rather than on the trail right and a semi truck pulled out of that facility right there and this is the ride that i did with um alan where we identified if you go stand right there you can't see anything on the road really because of all of this brush so we're going to reach out to this business and see if they can't do some clearing of the brush here to improve sight lines the vines on the fence yeah but i just wanted to acknowledge we talk a lot about what happens when the police fail us and a life is lost unnecessarily because of a government failure. I, 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 I don't want to equate it, but I think that like we also need to recognize failures of street design when somebody loses a life. That is also a tragedy. And so I just wanted to acknowledge that as we were going by. Talking about Michael Rainville, ah. slow night on the ride along. Yeah, the thing that we were dealing with more than anything were unsheltered youth and people struggling with substance use and mental health that was almost exclusively all that we were dealing with that night you know it was kind of ironic because 
we ended up sitting there at bar close uh, outside of the gay 90s, I want to say. Lieutenant Torberg, now Inspector Torberg of the 2nd Precinct, is just like, yeah, sorry guys, it's the curse of the ride-along. As soon as you get somebody in the car with you, nothing happens. And I swear to God, as soon as he finished his sentence, we heard all these gunshots go off. This is what's like kind of what's important about the story is it was bar time. So every single squad was downtown for bar time. They all convened along the strip just to provide support for all of the kind of activity at bar time. And not only was every single on-duty officer downtown, but there were several off-duty officers who had been hired to watch after the surface parking lot on 5th and Hennepin, which is where the gunshot happened. And there was an off-duty officer at the pizza shop across the street. You know, we talk a lot about the staffing shortage, but at that very moment in time, it was a high, as high a density of officers as you could imagine. You could have a police force of 2,000 or 3,000 and maybe achieve that kind of density everywhere at any given time. But at that moment in time, it was a high dense um, of, of coverage and those shots went off anyway and we whipped a u-turn and the metro transit police were downtown as well couldn't find him right. we chased after one person but he was just running for his life you know and uh it was just kind of like the extremes of public safety that i think and this is actually one of the things i'm most optimistic about the discussion about policing in 2021 was very immature uh, and very not constructive, frankly. I think that there was a lot of um, hyperbolic language around question two that made it seem like we were gonna have some sort of purge after election day. <laughs> and all the police were gonna hand in their badges and guns. Force the chief to retire? Can you imagine the chief retiring after oh, no. the election? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, all of that rhetoric was just so toxic. And I think it's why question two didn't pass in the, at the, in the end, but it, it was just such a false narrative. Like all question two would do was create the structural conditions to have a more comprehensive public safety system. Uh, and in some ways I, I, I'd like to say that and we won on question two because you, know, you look at uh, somebody like Scott Graham in Ward 7, who is the, uh, Maybe it's too far to say handpicked successor of Lisa Goodman, but she endorsed him. She endorsed him. Um, you know, he, if you read his, his campaign website, he talks about, he, you would, he sounds like somebody who would support question two. He's talking about a comprehensive approach to public safety supporting BCR, right? That's the part where I'm optimistic of like, even who we're coding as the conservative leaning candidates in right. some of these races, it, it, it's kind of status quo now to say, of course we're gonna have BCR, of course we're gonna have alternatives to police. That's the only way that we can have a comprehensive approach to public safety. We, we lost the question two battle, but the, the bigger discussion about the future of public safety, I feel like we've developed some consensus around that is about adding on top of police, which was what question two was always about. It was never about getting rid of, it was always about adding more. Yeah, set the agenda for the future. Yeah. It always makes me very sad that the the most consequential outcome of that election was the government structure change, which was not relevant to <laughs> the events of the time. Right. Uh, and nobody was really talking about the government structure ballot question. All focus was on question two. 
But it was the government structure question that actually ended up being the more profound change to the system. Question two was a very incremental change, if you think about it. All right, here goes Lowry, which is a terrible street right now, but is getting a reconstruction very soon. This is a new apartment building that was actually quite controversial um, back in, I want to say, 2020, 2021. Is this California Street? This is California Street. And this is the one? This is the one. I remember there were tombstones in the field. Yeah. Uh, because obviously you build an apartment building that is the equivalent of mass death. Uh, that's one way of framing it, yep. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it, it ultimately went through, as you see. Seems, I don't know, it's shorter than this other building. Uh, it was a huge lot, frankly. Seems fine, I think it'll be lovely. But this is actually one of the biggest tensions I would say in the ward is um, the arts district and the need for more affordable housing and the fear of losing some of these historic industrial spaces. And it's actually been one of the more challenging things to navigate because of course I love our arts district. I think it's, I mean, it's a nationally recognized asset for the community. Uh, and we also have a housing crisis. And just like this conversation about bike lanes, it's a debate about space. Who is at the center of being deserving of various uses? And so it's about trade-offs. And I think that, you know, actually the last thing we were talking about was the public safety debate. I just think that um, life is not filled with win-wins. One of my biggest frustrations is when people try to frame things as win-wins. There are often trade-offs that need to be had and it doesn't need to be a zero-sum trade-off, but I think there is a maturity that's necessary to do this work where you can be honest about the trade-offs that you're making and just making sure that you're being as transparent and forthright about what those trade-offs are and what your set of values are in terms of judging those trade-offs. Yeah, win-wins are often a delay tactic. Like, let's wait until I agree. We need to get to the win-win and it's from people who are kind of happy with the way things are and they just yes. propose change. You know, maybe it's not, maybe you won't be happy. Maybe yeah. you don't get a veto. And you know, like I think about home ownership. You know, I've been a homeowner since 2007, which was really amazing timing on my part to purchase my first home right before the collapse. You know, that wasn't the greatest deal for me, but it was stable. Um, and you know, I turned 40 on election day in 2021. So I am solidly uh, middle-aged at this point. Yeah, me and, too. <laughs> and, you know, my campaign manager was the like closest relationship to a young person I'd had in quite some time. And he had to move several times during the campaign because he had just graduated college and had roommate situations. and family situations and you know when you're a homeowner for over a decade you kind of start missing out on um what were the changes that have happened to the housing market because you're kind of not paying attention because you're settled it was actually very eye-opening to see what his struggles were trying to find an affordable rental and especially when you're working on a campaign you're not rolling in dough at that time. Right. <laughs> you know, so. Pay your employees more, Elliot Payne. That's the answer. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, it, it's really important when you're centering these trade-offs that you're centering them 
around a lived experience that is different than your own. And I think it's really easy to go into it. And like, I grew up poor, I grew up on welfare, but like, I'm a council member now. Our jobs are six figure incomes. Um, as working class of uh, upbringing as I had, you know, single mom, teacher, um, my lived experience is farther removed from, you know, my mom replacing our milk with powdered milk and hiding it from us so that we didn't, you know, reject it to now where, you know, I was like, oh, I want to get a new bike for lockdown. Should I get a Peloton or a custom built Surly? That's a very different lived experience. And I need to recognize that, that not everybody has that kind of privilege or financial resources. And so as we're thinking about trade-offs, you really have to think about the people who don't have advantages and privilege because every decision that we make is going to help some people and harm others. And the goal is to help as many people as we can with the limited resources that we have. I've been frustrated with the rent uh, stabilization debate because I, I keep thinking about it in terms of the minimum wage. Yeah. Like, why can't we agree on the, just the concepts? Forget the details, what level will be set at, what the exceptions might be. But from a consumer protection, a very, yeah. a very Joe Biden style consumer protection frame, is there any limit that this should be set at? And maybe we should have this debate over what that limit is. This is another area where I'm really frustrated with the lack of maturity within the conversation writ large. Um, the mayor's report comes out and says, oh, don't do this, it's really bad, it doesn't work. Because it doesn't solve the problem of cost burden. Well, can we actually have a mature conversation about this? Rent stabilization isn't a policy that's purpose-built for addressing cost burden. What it's really effective at is preventing displacement. And so let's have an honest conversation about that. I know that passing rent stabilization isn't uh, like, Done, we solved affordable housing. That's not what rent stabilization is for. The only real solution to solving our affordable housing crisis is massive subsidies because it's a physics problem. Uh, it just costs $300,000 per unit to build new and nothing will be affordable at $300 or $300,000 new. So you need to subsidize that. And so the question is, uh, if you're not gonna support rent stabilization, uh, how many billions of dollars are you willing to put into housing subsidy? And it turns out that that's more money than a local government can really allocate. And so rent stabilization is essentially the fallback from the failure to invest in public housing over generations. And it's something that can be done outside of a city budget constraint. And so we need to do something to address displacement and we also need to do something around subsidy and I think it is bad faith to just say oh it doesn't work and then decide to not do anything right so I, I tend to buy the argument that the strongest version of the policy that we saw initially implemented in St. Paul and the, the one that was in the initial draft introduced in Minneapolis that got vetoed and didn't go anywhere I kind of buy the argument that that would be that would hurt housing production that would cause developers to leave the city, stop building. And that would uh, decrease supply, which I think is an important component of having a healthy housing market in the city. How do you see it? Uh, well, I was actually originally frustrated that we decided to do the uh, rent stabilization work group. I felt that the voters were very clear that they wanted city council to explore a policy and to weigh the pros and cons. And 
trade-offs of what it would be to implement various versions of the policy. I saw it as my job to do that work. And I was originally very frustrated with the stabilization work group because it felt like we were kind of abdicating our responsibility as policymakers. Maybe it was naive of me to think that getting elected would make me responsible for creating policy, but that was the will of the body was to create a stabilization work group. Uh, and I'm kind of committed to this whole democracy thing. And so when the work group is formed and it comes out with a policy that has passed by majority, I think that's something that we should seriously consider. And what I was always hoping to do is get to a point where we could, as policymakers, have a conversation about the trade-offs, the intended and unintended consequences, talk about the impact on new construction, talk about the impact of various exemption schemes and how that would help or hurt certain, uh, you know, constituency groups um, and long-term goals. I also believed very strongly that we need to follow a democratic process. And so I really wanted us to bring forward the work group's recommendations, refer it to committee, where we could ultimately debate those policy elements. And it was just so, so sad that we didn't get that chance to do that this year and that it happened on a Muslim holiday. That was so disheartening to me, frankly, because I want you to either support it or, or vote against it through the democratic process. Or have an amendment. Or have an amendment or an idea <laughs> or some seriousness that you take the housing crisis. And if you're not going to bring an amendment to a rent stabilization policy, then bring a budget amendment that's going to uh, set aside more dollars for our affordable housing trust fund or bring forward an, uh, a policy on increasing our minimum wage. The, a lot of this is just math. It's too expensive to pay for rent. You can't afford uh, to raise a family on minimum wage. So either we need to do something for rent and people's costs, or we need to do something on their income. So uh, I would be much more open to somebody declining to support rent stabilization if they were a champion of raising the minimum wage. But what, I'd, what I'm seeing is basically just nothing. <laughs> and that's, that's very unserious to me. I hesitate to ask about government structure, but uh, how's that ask going? Ask away. How's that going? <laughs> Are we going to have a fully functioning uh, legislative branch, a fully functioning city council at any point in your next term? Uh, that's a great question. I'd like to think so, um, at least from a staff capacity perspective. Will we have all of the kinks in the system worked out? Maybe not. but. The one thing that there is a lot of consensus around is we really need legislative support with the kind of newly narrowed focus of what our responsibility is. And I ultimately voted against the new government structure ordinance because I just felt that it was doing the sequence all wrong. Um, the voters gave a decisive win to strong mayor and under a strong mayor system, uh, my, my opinion is that the mayor had all of the authority that he needed to manage the administration the way he wanted. And I don't think he needed any kind of legislative fix at the ordinance level to clarify the charter. Right. Um, I think that what needed more clarification was the role of city council. And I think that we should have done the legislative restructuring before the administrative because 
as the executive, he could just tell his staff how he wanted things to work. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we, He's the one who we, took control over all of the the per people power of the city government. Yeah, we didn't need to wait a year for him to decide that he wanted certain people in certain positions with certain roles and responsibilities. Um, you know, maybe there would need to be some technical work from an HR perspective, job classification perspective, that maybe would need some council approval technically, but th there weren't barriers for him doing that. Um, frankly, I think prioritizing all of that work was more of a, a narrative building exercise than anything else. Uh, in, in the defense of our staff, it was pretty chaotic coming into office and not having a lot of clarity around what this meant. And so I do understand the desire to create more clarity for the frontline staff doing the work every day. But I think leadership should be able to allow you to do that without having to go through a full legislative process to redefine the executive branch. So now we are prioritizing the legislative branch finally, as we have a few months left in the term, you know? So I think next term, it's gonna be really about streamlining how we do our legislative work. What does it look like to truly be an oversight function in city government and to take those responsibilities very seriously? What is your mission for the next term? What is the thing only Elliot Payne can do that uh, you're, you're pledging to your constituents that you're gonna do everything in your power to make happen? I am the last surviving member of the performance man management innovation team that created BCR. Um, as you recall, there was a fairly contentious public hearing for the appointment of our current interim COO. That was when she was getting appointed as the city coordinator under the previous government structure. There was a lot of accusations of retaliation. Um, I think there's a high bar to cross to prove retaliation. But I can just tell you just the objective fact is, is that every single one of those staff members is no longer a part of the city. The reason that I ran for city council is because I realized I was gonna have to be one of those black staff members that left the city because of the toxic racist culture. I personally feel almost a sense of duty even to make sure that the work of that team survives. I am the last surviving member. I am the institutional knowledge of how that team did work, what work it did, what was challenging about the work. And it's the work that ultimately led to the creation of BCR. BCR is not the end point of the future of public safety. That is our starting point. And I'm really deeply committed to delivering on the vision of what it means to have a holistic and empathetic and humane approach to public safety in all aspects, whether that's crime, substance use disorder, homelessness. Safety is having a roof over your head. Safety is being able to raise a family. Oh, sorry, left. Um, safety is not running into each other because there's not a clear delineation <laughs> on which way the bike path goes. <laughs> and I am so deeply and profoundly committed to doing that. What's the threat? Is it that it just won't be funded to the level? Is it uh, mismanagement? What's the threat that would cause that to not be successful? Fear, fear is the threat. Uh, what we saw in 2021 is one of the most effective fear-mongering campaigns of a generation of politics. What we need to do is overcome that fear and really unite around a shared vision where 
heaven forbid, being a black man in America, wanting to just live their life without having to have any care or consideration about whether or not their government will murder them, right? Like, that needs to not be viewed as a radical position. <laughs> that needs to be the mainstream common sense position rather than one that is built around fear. And so I think that's the narrative. I think that's the thread that binds it all together. One way uh, I feel like you can overcome the fear is the idea that like uh, the staffing chart is locked. Uh, there's no amount of money you could rob from one program to give to the police that would cause it to go up. Just kind of a fact of life. Yeah. And so this, I don't know. There, there aren't a ton of candidates fear-mongering on the budget, although defund does come up from candidates. They will dog whistle it. I am uh, genuinely surprised by people in 2021, I'm sorry, people in 2023 still running on defund. Yeah. I'm genuinely surprised by that. So, uh, we're talking about you, Scott Graham. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say any names. <laughs> I did. <laughs> I was just at that forum. I'll be at another one this week. It's another uh, questionable Idaho stop opportunity. It is. It is. Although we do have our little button. I was on a Bill Dooley memorial ride and maybe my memory is off, but I thought one of the people was talking about next time we're really going to get them and have it apply to uh, stoplights. Oh, maybe I just broke the law. I'll let listeners fact check it. Uh, I will say this. Um, I actually got a chance. I, I, I rode with Bill Dooley on a number of occasions. Um, and actually, one of the things that started getting me more active locally was joining the Major Taylor Bike uh, Group, which is where I met Bill Dooley. Um, and Anthony Taylor, who does a lot of the slow roll stuff. And um, I, it was really sad him passing away, but it was really, really, really special to see how his legacy is living on. Here we are at the end, Elliot Payne. Thank you for joining me. This has been the Wedge Live podcast. Uh, I'm cutting out all the parts where Elliot Payne and I almost crashed into each other. Thanks for joining me. This was Thanks fun. Thanks for having me. This was fun. Thanks for uh, touring the ward. We actually did a pretty significant loop of Ward 1. So that was fun. I had a great time. Uh, this is the Wedge Live Podcast. I'm your host, John Edwards. Thank you for listening. This is a real, real thing. Real, 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 real thing. neighborhood right now 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 right